Well, good morning, y'all. How you doing? All right. Well, thanks so much for inviting me into your worship space this Sunday morning. Justin, thanks to you for, for bringing me out here. This is really cool. Um, I've been to Minneapolis once before in October, hang out with Lena, and I got to say, y'all have an awesome city or two cities or whatever it is. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about me so you know this dude who's standing in front of you a little bit. Um, first of all, so I live in Denver, as Justin said, and I work as a director of religious education. I also work as a senior editor for UU World Magazine, the national UU publication, which hopefully you get in your homes or um, not. If not, let me know, I guess. Um, and I also am very involved in Black Lives Matter in the Denver uh, area. And so I always I wanted to start by telling you that I, I always preach with my cell phone on the uh, pulpit. And the reason I do that is because the first time I ever gave a sermon, I was, um, I was a f- sophomore in college. I went to the University of Missouri. And my parents lived in Houston, Texas, where I grew up. And um, my mom really, my mom and dad really wanted to hear the sermon. So they, uh, you know, we didn't quite, like, Skype wasn't like, I don't know, it wasn't good yet then. And so we just said, you know, I'm, how about, she's like, how about you put me on speakerphone? So I called them up from the service, uh, from the sermon, and talked to them throughout. And uh, at one point during this, the sermon, I asked my mom how I was doing, and she said, on speakerphone, like, you're doing fine, but just tell more jokes. Um, <laughs> the whole church could hear it. And uh, I, I was, and then the next time I preached, she had me call in 15 minutes before the service started so she could hear the pre-service chatter. I was like, what? Like, you just want to hear random people you don't know talking about stuff you don't know about? Okay. Um, I tell you that because it's always important for me when I preach to bring my mom into the room. Uh, my mom died of cancer five years ago in 2011, um, and, you know, she and I were incredibly close, and this movement for black lives, like really every movement for black lives, uh, sometimes men get the credit, but it's the black women who have and have always been the leaders, like Lena Gardner. Um, and probably some of you recognize my sweater. Uh, this is an Audrey Lord. Uh, there's this company in Philly that like made really great university themed uh, apparel so I invite you to check out if you're not familiar with Audrey Lord. I don't have time to tell you about her now but she's amazing um, so look her up um, but I think it's important and it's always important for me to invoke my mom's spirit whenever I preach and so when my mom let's see when I was maybe nine my mom thought it would be a good idea for me to learn how to play chess and uh, she was a very good chess player. Any chess fans in the house? Few? Okay. So the piece you can't lose is the, if you lose the, oh, interesting. Yeah, see, okay, this is going to be fun. Yes, so if you lose the king, if the king is, ca- or if the king is checkmated, you lose. The most powerful piece on the board, of course, is the queen. Yes. So 
this was the first lesson of chess that I learned, uh, which was the queen was the most powerful piece. So what she said to me was, if you lose your queen, it's not very likely that you'll win. So me, what did I do? I protected my queen at all costs and didn't move it ever. <laughs> ever. And so my mom would just destroy me time after time in chess. And she took no mercy. She took no mercy. And she said, in order to, it may be your most powerful piece, but in order to win in chess, you have to use your queen, even though you may lose it. And there may become a time where you have to give up that which is most powerful in you for the greater good. So hold on to that story. We'll come back to that. Using your queen. That's what I'm inviting us all to do as we talk about the work, as we live into the work of Black Lives Matter. There are words that every year at Christmas Eve, my suburban Houston, uh, where I grew up, Houston, Texas, suburban Houston church, we would read these words from Sophia Lyon Fawes every Christmas Eve. And I'm going to read them to you now. For so the children come. For so the children come, and so they have been coming. Always in the same way they come, born of the seed of man and woman. No angels herald their beginnings. No prophets predict their future courses. No wise men see a star to show where to find the babe that will save humankind. Yet each night a child is born is a holy night. Fathers and mothers sitting beside their children's cribs feel glory in the sight of a new life beginning. They ask when and where and how will this life end? Or will it ever end? Each night a child is born is a holy night. A time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. Each night a child is born is a holy night, a time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. In my congregation every year, uh, a woman elder, a different one, would read that to us as kids and as the whole congregation. And you know, at first when I was six, seven, eight, it was just the thing that happened and I really, and as I got a little older, I started listening more and more. And when I was a teenager, every year, that reading would just make me weep. And hearing it from, that, from a strong woman in our congregation, picked differently every year, each night a child is born is a holy night. And on August 9th, 2014, when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, for whatever reason, that's that refrain came flying back to me as I watched, like many of you, watched things unfold on social media, on Twitter, and hearing reports that he lay in the street for four and a half hours. Each night a child is born is a holy night. In this work of Black Lives Matter, so often those who are killed by the state, those who are harassed by the state, whatever it may be, are then put on trial themselves as the victims. Sam DuBose 
in Cincinnati. When he was killed, they used his criminal mugshot in the news. We heard all about Rakia Boyd and Chicago's bad associations. Sandra Bland, right here, Jamara Clark. The people who are killed are put on trial. And I keep wondering as Unitarian Universalists, what would happen if we were the faith that said, yes, she was impolite, and the night she was born was a holy night. Yes, he may have stole something, the night he was born was a holy night. Because whenever I think of Unitarian Universalist theology, we can explain the Unitarians and we can talk about the radical love of the Universalists. But when I think about our theology, I go back to that one line. Each night a child is born is a holy night. A time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. I know many of you, some of you are parents. You felt that feeling. I don't know what that is to feel. Being beside your spouse, your partner, maybe an estranged partner. Fathers and fathers, mothers and mothers, mothers and stepfathers, whatever it may be. Sitting beside your new child's crib. And I always think about the parents. The parents of Mike Brown, the parents of Sandra Bland, those families. So as I went forward, feeling after watching Mike Brown and being a part of this unfolding movement and not sure what was going to happen, but knowing that I needed to do something, that I felt called by my Unitarian Universalist faith to act, that idea that I believe that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, that the night or the day you were born was a holy night, a holy day. I wondered how best for me person who grew up in white suburbia, who as a young teen felt like, felt like an outcast in black community, who suffered from depression and still does, what was my role? And my mom's story of use your queen occurred to me one night early in 2015. Use your queen peace. What is it that within me is most powerful? And I didn't know. I wasn't sure. But I'll tell you, friends, that I read a book in search of this answer. I read a book by Parker Palmer, a name that's probably familiar to some of you. And in this book, Parker Palmer talks about that when we encounter tragedy, that we as human beings have two choices. That our hearts, when we are moved or saddened, our hearts, they can break, they will break, he says, but they can break apart or they can break open. Palmer says that if our hearts break apart, that is when we are ruled by defensiveness, by pain, 
by hurt, we then hurt others. That the pain is so much that we just split open and what comes out is harmful to those around us. We are seeing a lot of that, I think, in this country right now. But Palmer says if our hearts break open, if we allow the hurt to be there and to then use it, but to hold it as container, that it can fuel us to greater kindness. So this idea that we could use our sadness for good, that was new to me. So I said, you're telling me I could use the fact that I'm depressed? The fact that, that I am so moved by what I'm seeing in the news, that that can be what pushes me to be involved in this movement? That I don't have to get over it before I join the cause? Well, how about that? And friends, that's what I see for Unitarian Universalism. There are no easy answers in this faith. There are no easy truths for us. And I know from talking a little bit with Justin about your congregation, I know from being at UU churches all over the country, I know from being a lifelong UU that we are, despite our sometimes reserved approach in worship or whatever it may be, I know that we are a people who feel. We are a people who believe at our best in radical love. And I wonder what if that was our queen peace? What if we were the people who showed up hurting, yes, and we used that hurt for healing? What if we were the people And in many ways, I think we are the people, the broken-hearted people, the heartbroken-open people, those who say, you are young and black. Society does not care about you. I do. If we were the people who said, You are black and queer, and society has decided that your death does not matter. We believe it does. I think we can be that people, friends. And I really do believe we're on our way. The day Mike Brown died, the, the day Mike Brown died, I didn't know how to respond. I watched on social media, just followed on Twitter over and over and over, refresh, 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 and then I started looking, maybe there's gonna be a solidarity action in Denver. I saw one pop up in New York, in Chicago, Maybe there'll be one in Denver. So I, I searched my friend Jesse, who lived, you lived here before, right? Now lives in, and now lives in Denver. Um, I searched Denver Mike Brown Solidarity. I searched it in Twitter. I 
I searched it on Facebook. I searched it on Google. I woke up that Sunday. It was a Saturday, August 9th. It's a Saturday. Sunday morning, searched again. Got to church where I work, searched again. I thought, okay, well, I'll wait till after worship. Searched again. Nothing. And some of us in the room believe in God. Some of us don't. Some of us believe spirit of life, whatever it may be. I said, hmm, this is interesting. I was not a professional activist. I was not an organizer. I hadn't been trained at all. But I said, I think this is one of those, what do they call it, spiritual, like, chances or something. I don't know. So I very, I can still remember the feeling of my hands shaking, typing on Twitter, does anybody want to gather for a solidarity action? And within about six minutes, I got five responses. There have been people doing the exact same search. So about a dozen of us gathered that night. Four days later, 120 of us gathered. A week after that, it was 300. And we haven't stopped. And there are stories like this in cities all over the country and beyond of people who, whatever their faith, whatever was pulling them, calling them, responding from wherever they were in life. And at those early actions, there were so many Unitarian Universalists. And there still are. I know that's true from the pictures Lena showed me. I know that's true here in Minneapolis. You know, and I kept waiting. <laughs> I kept waiting for the real activists to, to show up and take over. <laughs> and they did, and they said, hey, man, you're doing fine. <laughs> Keep at it. So I close with, with an invitation for you to reflect on your queen peace. For me, it is my depression. It is that I have experienced the lowest of low feelings. As a preteen, as a teen, as a young adult. That is my most powerful weapon, somehow. What's yours? I've seen people, I've seen Unitarian Universalists who you know, I'm not much of a, like, be-in-the-streets person, but I love to cook, who show up with food to feed the movement. People who show up to help with song in the movement. People whose queen peace is being incredibly organized. Do you need help filing paperwork? Do you need help? Do you need some people to be there early? Some people to stay late? close down. Using that which is best in us, we all have queen pieces to use. And it may be hard. It will be hard. And we may feel like we are losing that which is best in us, but friends, it is so worth it. Each night a child is born is a holy night. A time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. 
that sentiment is not yet fully true in our society, may we be the people who help it to become so. Amen.